You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. A big hello to our international audience. I am Bob Akebasade, the CEO of Toronto Centre. On October 18th, at the margins of the IMF World Bank annual meetings in Washington, I had a very engaging conversation with a renowned mathematician, Michaela Mosca. You might wonder what a mathematician would have to do with the mission of Toronto Centre. He talked about risks to national and global financial stability that most are unaware of. Sometimes it is good to step outside of the box, so to speak. Let me first introduce him, and then you can hear his perspective during our interview. Miguel Mosco is a co-founder of the Institute for Quantum Computing at the University of Waterloo, a professor in the Department of Combinatorics and Optimization of the Faculty of Mathematics, and a founding member of Waterloo's Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics. He was the founding director of CryptoWorks 21, a training program in quantum-safe cryptography. He's a founder of the Etsy IQC workshop series in quantum-safe cryptography and the not-for-profit QuantumSafe Canada. He obtained his doctorate in mathematics in 1999 from Oxford on the topic of quantum computer algorithms. His research interests include quantum computation and cryptographic tools designed to be safe against quantum technologies. He is globally recognized for his drive to help academia, industry, and government prepare our cyber systems to be safe in an era with quantum computers. Dr. Moscow's awards and honors are numerous and include Fellow of the Institute for Combinatorics and its applications since 2000, 2010 Canada's Top 40 Under 40, Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal in 2013, SJUFR Norm Choate Lifetime Achievement Award 2017, and a knighthood in the Order of Merit of the Italian Republic. I hope you will enjoy the interview. Professor Mosca, thank you for talking to the Toronto Centre's global audience of financial sector supervisors and regulators. Could you please provide our listeners with a brief background about yourself? As an undergraduate, I studied methods for breaking some of the codes people were starting to use to protect our, our digital systems. Uh, not because I wanted to break them and hurt people, because I wanted to, to make sure we were defending against these possible attacks. Uh, then as a graduate student at Oxford, I learned about these quantum computers that would allegedly break these codes. And I initially dismissed it as a joke in science fiction. But as I studied it more, I realized it was really a matter of time. Uh, you know, so I was wrong. It was a matter of time. And eventually, these devices would redefine what was secure and what wasn't. So I started working in quantum computing to understand their capabilities. Then I returned to, to Waterloo, Canada to start a quantum computing group within the Cryptography Center, and we quickly grew that into the Institute for Quantum Computing. Uh, my own research focuses on developing the tools for making positive use of quantum computers and for making sure digital infrastructures will be secure against quantum attacks. Excellent. Uh, you know what, I um, talking to you is fascinating to me because I'm not a very computer savvy person. I even have a hard time managing my own outlook. 
Can you give everyone a very brief version of what quantum computing is so we all agree on the definition? Yeah, sure. I'll, I mean, I'll borrow some notes from uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Um, regular computers encode information as a series of zeros and ones and then manipulate these bits in order to perform computations. Now, if we take into account the physical reality that quantum theory tells us, a physical bit can actually encode a much richer array of states beyond just a zero or a one. It can somehow encode a continuum of combinations of zero and one. Now, without getting into details, the bottom line is, if we can build a computer that can control these combinations of zeros and ones in a quantum mechanical way, we get a computing device that we believe is exponentially hard to simulate on any regular non-quantum computing platform. The bottom line is for every additional quantum bit we add, we'd have to double, more than double, the amount of classical resources needed to simulate it. So once you're even at just 30 quantum bits, it'll take gigabytes of memory to simulate it. 40 quantum bits would take terabytes, and just a few hundred quantum bits would require more matter than in the known universe to simulate in a classical way. So the aim of quantum computing is firstly to build such a device, a stable quantum computer, and secondly, to find very useful applications for these devices. Well, I have to say, as a mathematician, you explain things extremely clearly, so thank you for that. And uh, so that our audience doesn't think we're just having a pro conversation about computing, I want to bring it back to the mission of Toronto Centre, which is to train regulators and supervisors of financial sector. We spend a lot of time preparing crisis simulations, doing stress testing, since 2008, we've conducted over 100 crisis simulations around the world. Some may refer to us as a center of excellence in this area, although we're very modest about it because you can never be too sure about how well things are happening. So coming to my question, at a high level, as it relates to quantum computing, can you identify potential vulnerabilities or risks to the financial system, whether, whether it be for individual firms system-wide and even for those in charge of systems oversight such as supervisors or regulators of financial institutions or put it another way why should they care yeah i see four very serious vulnerabilities the first one is that information transmitted in the past now and until those channels are protected against quantum attacks that information if it's been recorded and stored properly can be decrypted in the future and made available not only to state actors but to criminals through all sorts of means such as the dark web now this will almost certainly happen to some extent. So the sooner we migrate applications to be resistant to quantum codes, the sooner we can sort of stop the bleeding. The second vulnerability is, is much more uh, uh, dangerous in a sense. Platforms that don't migrate in time to quantum resistant codes will be susceptible to systemic and sustained collapse. In the worst scenarios, we're talking about systemic collapse of multiple critical infrastructures globally with no sustainable fix in place. You know, this would be the most apocalyptic scenario I see with the potential for massive loss of lives. The third vulnerability, and this scenario is, is even more likely to happen, is if we procrastinate and we rush to mitigate uh, these quantum attacks, well then inevitably there's gonna be design and implementation flaws across our IT platforms. And these kinds of errors can be exploited by hackers without quantum computers. Right? So if you think the hacking today is, is bad enough, this is going to vastly exacerbate that. The last risk, last vulnerability I see, and this is the shorter term risk that could happen within you know, people's current political mandates or job, uh, job uh, appointments, is the following. You know, we just recently heard news of uh, you know, quantum supremacy being achieved and so on. I see that as a warning gun. 
The next major milestone after that in experimental quantum computing, so-called fault tolerance, that will be a starting gun. That will indicate, that will start a race of, because then we'll know quantum computers are actually, you know, going to be available in the short to medium term. And it'll be a race to protect our systems against quantum attacks while people are trying to build them to do, you know, many positive things. So if that starting gun goes off and organizations or institutions are not able to articulate that they have this under control, right? this is a threat that we've known about since 1994. So if they're not able to convincingly articulate they have a quantum readiness plan, it's on track, maybe even ahead of schedule, and they will have this mitigated in time, then we know what happens. You've had I'm sure many simulations where these things happen and people didn't have their, their cyber incident response plan ready or there are big gaps in it. And then the blame game begins. CEOs will fire the, the, the information security officers, boards fire the CEOs, you know, and regulators and boards of directors. It's just a great finger pointing uh, a fiasco. And when this happens, while cyber systems won't be collapsing there in real time, it will further erode trust and confidence in our institutions, which is already at a bad state around the world and fueling things such as populism. So we don't want to go there. We don't want uh, to, you know, the, the, the mishandling of this well-known quantum risk will only exacerbate an already uh, bad situation. Professor Moscow, what keeps you up at night? Well, two things. As a cryptographer, you know, we all go to bed at night worrying that some smart mathematician somewhere in the world figures out how to, you know, very quickly break the codes that underpin the security of our digital systems, right? So we need to work very hard at mitigating that risk. So in terms of the, the quantum resilient codes that we're deploying, we need to intensely study them to, to make sure as much as we can that they will be resilient to cryptanalytic attacks. Um, we also need to be much better at uh, designing and deploying failover mechanisms for this kind of systemic uh, threat, which we haven't, which we don't have in place now. So that definitely worries me. Uh, the second thing that keeps me up at night is just more generic cyber attacks. It could be the cryptanalytic attacks I just mentioned or anything else, you know, taking advantage of poorly designed systems or, or implementation errors. Because if these attacks you know, simultaneously take down communication or transportation or the financial system, for a sustained period of time, you know, this means that the most vulnerable among us, you know, uh, are at risk, are at very, very serious risk. For example, life-saving medicine, it's very hard to produce them if the system's needed to, to, to make these, these drugs and so on, uh, or down and failing, and transporting them, or paying for them, and so on, right? And so that's a very, uh, uh, you know, dangerous threat to the uh, most vulnerable people among us. One might argue that these kind of attacks are already possible. Um, but the thing is, it just so happens that the growing circle of people currently capable of launching these attacks to date, you know, to date, they've chosen not to. Uh, but the circle of people who are getting access to these kinds of powerful cyber weapons is getting larger, is including more people with less to lose, right? And we need to get ahead of this game before it becomes a serious problem. Um, so this is, we need to get much more serious with cyber resilience because once one of them decides to, for whatever reason, uh, to cause wide-scale disruption, it'll be very hard to put the genie back in the yeah. bottle. Uh, very good point. So one of the areas we focus on in our capacity building programs is the need for effective communication and coordination. While you've highlighted that the technological response is not yet robust enough to deal with these sorts of attacks, do you believe the rules and routines amongst a large number of potentially uncoordinated decision makers are in place to respond appropriately? 
Unfortunately, I don't think so. I don't. I don't yeah. think we're even close. Yeah, it's now, really it's really a struggle to even find who's in charge. Yeah, we find that a lot in our various yeah. training too, and it's a simulation that we actually put them through. That that's that's yeah. good. It's good to know that at least we're on the same page. Are these risks confined only to developed jurisdictions, or do you think developing countries also need to be on watch? Yes, I mean we all use you know basically the same fundamental building blocks for our cyber systems, so we're all vulnerable to these kinds of attacks. And if it's and if it's not managed proactively, then once there's a panic and a rush to fix things, obviously the developing world I expect will be left behind, and the focus will be on protecting, you know, systems in the developed world. So I think uh, they definitely want to, uh, you know, it's in everyone's best interest uh, to get ahead of this. Um, I guess one, you know, basically uh, even even in the developing world, as we slowly lose the know-how and ability to survive without digital technologies. Um, it'll become very hard to cope when they do collapse. The one advantage I would say uh, the developing world has uh, is that they have fewer legacy systems, right? So in a sense, there's less inertia preventing the deployment of, of better design systems. We also notice, as you know, like the, there's a lot of uh, computing potential and technological understanding even in developing countries too, you know, as we see in cyber attacks. So maybe there's a level playing field here yeah. at the same yeah. time, right? Um, what do you think needs to be done immediately to mitigate the risks of these potential attacks from a financial supervisory and regulatory perspectives? Let me give you a bit of context. Generally, supervisors and regulators constantly try to catch up, right? So in this case, is there anything they can do at this point in time to sort of um, become proactive? Yeah, I mean, at a high level, we need them to internalize the externalities associated with cyber risk. Because the so-called you know market forces in this place, by the time those kick in, I think it, you know we're putting out massive fires uh, that we might not be able to get ahead of. Uh, more concretely, I think we need organizations to assess their quantum vulnerabilities and articulate their quantum readiness plans. And and I think you know we can urge them to do this within the next six to twelve months, right? And after that, you know every year they need to you know update this plan and demonstrate they're achieving key milestones towards. Uh, quantum readiness. Uh, this will inevitably involve engagement with their vendors and their vendors will have to engage with their vendors, you know, all through the supply chain, but we need to start that process and that, that dialogue now. Okay, thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation. I, I already can see a lot of implications here. Uh, some of it is very scary. In fact, here at the World Bank IMF, when I'm talking about big data with various people, I know that governors are scared. They may not admit it publicly, but if you talk to them privately, they would say something to you to that effect. And that's not even the cyber um, uh, quantum computing you're talking about. That's like an earlier generation. Um, when it comes to um, uh, quantum computing, if we really want to be um, more proactive, is there any role for leadership amongst um, G7 countries, Canada and others? Is there anything we can do? The general public doesn't know what, what the cyber risks really are. And so that means there's no political uh, you know, incentive. It's not kitchen table conversation to do anything about it. And so we have this sort of downward spiral. So what can we proactively do about it? I think they definitely can. Um, we can get you know, the leaders of the financial uh, system together and, and very quickly understand what uh, quantum readiness means to the financial sector. And I think simulations are a very important part of that to figure out what the gaps are. And we can, in a short number of months, basically, uh, articulate what 
what the uh, the trajectory from where we are today to being appropriately resilient to quantum attacks look like and start implementing it across the financial sector. And then after that, other critical infrastructures can largely uh, replicate uh, the key lessons that were learned by the financial institutions. Well, Michele Mosco, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about something that is really important, but not a lot of people are actually aware of its implications. So hopefully it sounds like you're starting something and uh, we'll be in touch with you for sure. Thank you. Thank you.